Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's so exciting to be back again every week. I don't know how you're not tired of me yet. We're, this is our 100th episode, including the the bonus episodes. Like, A, how did we go through 100 episodes and I still haven't done, gotten done talking? And B, how, how come you haven't gotten uh, tired of me yet? Well, Derek... I- the thing is, man, I, I had the same questions as you. I'm just like, how have we done a hundred of these now? How do we talk this much about the scriptures? I mean, at least I'm asking myself that. I don't ask myself how you can talk this much about the scriptures because, you know, <laughs> this is just what we do for fun anyway. But at the same time, it's quite a thing to look back on and just be like, oh my gosh, we've done a hundred of these episodes, these gospel-centered episodes but also in a way that centers marginalized people in the gospel. And we have like at least a hundred hours of content that does that. Like it just kind of makes you sit back and think a little bit. Like people have been listening to a hundred hours of our voices. Like I simultaneously pity them, but I'm also kind of proud of that. I don't think we'll ever get sick of each other at this rate where that we're going, especially considering that the restoration is never going to be finished until Mm -hmm. at least this much happens. And I think this is going to take us a lifetime if I'm being real. But uh, that's neither here nor there. This is just all a long way of me saying, you're stuck with me for a long time, Derek. We're stuck. You you talked to me. (laughs) The way you just said that, we're stuck. (laughs) Derek is tired of me already today. (laughs) We're only two minutes into this episode. Derek's already tired. No, no. Can't wait to get this conversation started. So before we do, let's just go ahead and remind the folks that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So just by way of historical background for section 20, this section had been under construction for about a year, and its earliest iterations were worked on by Oliver Cowdery as he anticipated the organization of the church. And so he was working on a document to describe how the church ought to be governed. The final product we have as section 20 was referred to as the Articles and Covenants of the Church in the early days, and uh, some have called it the Constitution of the Church. I also want to draw attention to an observation that Jared Halverson made this week on his show, Unshaken, that because of all the different kinds of doctrine that are present in this revelation on the organization of the church, section 20 reads, Uh, very much like a systematic theology that can perhaps make some sense of why so many subjects are covered in this one section, since the purpose of systematic theology is to more or less create an organized account of our doctrine. At least that's what Wikipedia said when I looked up the definition of systematic theology. Other definitions focus more on uh, answering questions about any topic with the modern application of scripture, which is what James Cone and other black liberation theologians I look up to do, and they, not coincidentally, are professors of systematic theology. As you read these verses, you may want to pay attention to these pieces of doctrine and history that the Lord felt to mention here, as they clearly have implications for the organization of the church and probably our lives too. So starting in verses 5 through 11, we get a history, namely the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the first vision as the foundational events of our faith. 
Now, before leaving this uh, section behind, I wanted to know what you thought of verse 7, which reads that the angel Moroni, quote, gave unto him commandments which inspired him. I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on, you know, is this how commandments are supposed to be, or is there a piece of context I might be missing here? I really think that the commandments are given as a gift and as a blessing and as a benefit. I don't think it's something that's given to make things worse for us or to even really test us. Uh-huh. But the commandments are an expression of God's love. And I love what Leviticus 18 verse 5 says. And I, can't, I don't have it in front of me, but it basically says, and these are the commandments which if you do them, you will live by them. So the point is that these commandments are life-giving. Sounds like they're supposed to be transformational. Right. So that's verse 7. And then we probably end uh, the historical piece once we get to verse 11. Verse 11 says, proving to the world, proving being these foundational pieces to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation as well as in generations of old. It says that the foundational events of the restoration meaning the first vision and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, proved to the world that God inspires men and calls them to this holy work. Mormons of all people, given what our faith is built on, ought to be able to understand that the heavens are open and that God speaks to us today. Yet uh, this is something that we kind of struggle with when it comes to believing other people when they tell us about their own experiences. We see that Oliver Cowdery is here, Joseph Smith is here, citing the foundational events of the restoration as proof that this is how God operates. But sometimes I feel like we as a church, we as members of the church, might be inclined to forget this when it comes to other people's own spirituality, other people's own journeys, Mm -hmm. when they take stewardship of their own lives. Now, we've talked about this a few times in the past. I don't know if we want to go into more detail about that today. I just wanted to make sure I highlighted that uh, since verse 11 did explicitly say that the foundational events of the restoration prove these things to us. Right. And I love the next verse, which says, thereby showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so the point of this is like, if God loved people in the past enough to send them prophets and commandments Mm -hmm. and a living uh, covenantal relationship then why wouldn't it be the true true for us today? And so I think that's that's a power that we have, that's sort of this ongoing nature. And by the way, this ongoing nature piece of it can somewhat make a systematic theology difficult in our con- context because mm-hmm. we don't have an equivalent of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this big outline that talks about how all the doc- doctrines fit together. Now, we have doctrines, but we don't know how they all fit together. And I think we've got a lot of gaps in our doctrine, and we also got some contradictions in our doctrine. If you actually try to do a systematic theology, it can be very difficult with our sources. That's why I end up just being more sort of biblical and exegetical as a theologian rather than systematic, because I'm not going to, I don't know how to put all all this stuff together. I'm very curious about where Blair Osler's project, hers is much more a systematic theology than mine ever would be. I actually did want to bring that up once we uh, got to verse 18, because uh, this is where the theological anthropology starts, which is the study of human nature. Liberation theologians spend a lot of time here because this is where they find their humanity within the divine. Verse 18 affirms that God created man, male and female, after his own image, and in his own likeness created he them, close quote. 
Both our conversation with Blair and the uh, Black LDS Legacy Conference from last weekend were gentle reminders to not take these truths for granted. Truths we affirm in our first lessons about God and songs we teach the primary children and elsewhere. Telling the dispossessed and dehumanized that they are created in the image of God is an act of love. It's an act of resistance. It's an, it's an act of justice in our society that is socialized to devalue marginalized folks, whereas acting in a bigoted manner denies this reality and desecrates God's creations, which brings us to verse 19, where the first commandment is named. God gave unto them commandments that they should love and serve him, the only living and true God, and that he should be the only being whom they should worship, close quote. And we cannot say we love God as we support, ignore, or uh, compromise with ideas and systems that devalue human beings in God's image because of their immutable identities. Human beings created in God's image because of their immutable identities. And 35, I thought was really interesting. We get to, first of all, a testimony that is born and then we learn about the three ways that truth is revealed. And uh, this cross-references with something that we read in the Pearl of Great Price. But let me just get to 35 real quick so we can see those. It says, and we know, that's the testimony part, that these things are true. And according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. At this point, knowing that this warning in the book of Revelation is not to be applied in this way, I have to ask if they understood the warning the way other Christians quote it at us. Is this the lens through which I have to read it? Because otherwise, this verse doesn't make sense. But if I do read it the way other Christians quote it to us, I have to reconcile the brazen contradiction here of claiming to heed the warning as they seem to be disregarding the warning with the addition of the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. Nonetheless, that's the interpretation I decided to explore because it made more sense to do so considering recent conversations we've had. That brings me to one more thing I learned with Blair and something that I've learned with you as well, something we regularly do on this show, actually. What popped into my head when I read this verse again was the conversation we had with Blair Osler when she said something along the lines of, I'm not sharing anything new with this book that she's going to be writing and hopefully releasing this summer. I'm literally mm -hmm. showing you what our scriptures teach. I'm not flipping the script. I'm literally reading the script. And you, Derek, right. you've said it at the beginning of this episode. You regularly say it on the show. At the conclusion of your thoughts, you really say, you usually say, it's in the scriptures. Like with that inflection and everything. You just say, it's in the scriptures. You kind of, it kind of sounds exasperated when you say it. But my point is... Oftentimes, we might sound like we're saying something new, but that's only because we are merely expounding on what is already present in the text in a way that is new. Like the content's not new, but the way we're sharing it is new. Well, I think it's getting into two things. Let me just back up and say my interpretation of what John's warning at the end of Revelation is limited to just the book of Revelation, his own book, because he talks about right. the prophecy in this book. And this book doesn't mean the Bible. So a lot of mm -hmm. people, especially our Protestant friends, well, Re Revelation is now published as the last book of the Bible. So people think that John had the other 26 books of the New Testament in front of him and he just tacked this on the end and, and then like said, nope, no more adding. But that's right. not the case. Like 
the New Testament was not compiled into one volume at any time in the first century. We don't even have the uh, canon list of the 27 books of the New Testament that, that make up the Protestant canon. We don't even have that until the year 367. Mm-hmm of the common era with with St. Athanasius. So we don't even have a coherent list of books to be added to yet, right? Or and it's mm-hmm. or to not add to. So he c- cannot be in his historical context be talking about adding to the New Testament because people continued to add to the te- New Testament even after John wrote this and debated which right. books. And so eventually you had had these things coalesce, but they're so that's he can't be talking about the Bible as a single volume. It just did not exist. The other thing right. to note is that uh, you're right in that a lot of the stuff that's new isn't really new. It's kind of like the New Covenant or the New Testament. A lot of that really is God trying to just give a refresh and say the stu- same stuff he's always been saying, but do it in a new context, in a new way, and maybe people will get it this time. And that's in that sense, the new covenant is like a new moon. Like a new moon happens every month. It's not right. There's nothing new about that, right? So that's like kind of tapping into what what you're saying. I mean, my instinct would also be to say that that sometimes there are things that are new. Yeah. And that's why it's tough to have a a complete and finalized, coherent systematic theology because our our systematic theology. Our, our theology will change. Like there could be another revelation tomorrow that really changes mm-hmm. our understanding. And we can never yeah. have a finite, have systematic theology as a completed project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another difficult part of this whole thing. As the restoration continues to unfold, we are going to learn new things that are going to challenge our understandings of what doctrine is or was. Right. So, right. yeah, it's difficult. And when we get the revelation that leads to the full inclusion of LGBT people, that's going to be in one sense new. Like we Mm -hmm. don't have an exact precedent in any previous dispensation for that either, but it's going to happen and it's going to be new and there's, that's going to change and shake up some people's theology. I just wanted to go back and look at this sort of almost creedal formula that's in verses 17 through 18. Okay. And when I look at this, this is the first confession of faith of the early church. And as far mm-hmm. as I can tell, it contains nothing that Christians of other churches of the time would not have also affirmed. But when I was reading this, my brain lit up with a web of connections whenever I recognized some wording that was familiar in another source. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's in the Bible. Oh, that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And as I was reading this, I saw this really interesting web and you you brought up the one that talks about male and female that that's taken straight from genesis right so i created a chart that compares this confession of faith in section 20 with other sources including the bible and then also in parallel with the nicene creed and then other expressions of christian faith as well and what we find when we compare all this together is that the teachings expressed here reflect what was generally accepted by Christians in the ni- in 19th century America. So I'm not going to go through this whole chart, but I wanted to just name that you've got all these things woven together, like this infinite and eternal and unchangeable God that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The, um, the phrase, only living and true God, that's not anywhere in the Bible, but that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then this uh, sensual and devilish, that is the results of the fall, that reflects 
James 3.15. So you've got all these things that are kind of woven together. And in outline, it really follows the Nicene Creed where you start out with God as creator and then humans as God's creation. And then it moves into an article about Jesus and then an article about the Holy Ghost. So just kind of putting this all together, you've got something that would be very accessible to other Christians of the day. And there's some interesting uh, phrase things like I you see the the phrase meridian of time and I'm like, "Oh, that mm. is not in the Bible. That must be from somewhere." And so to me, it really I can I can tell these phrasings instances of phrases that are very specific and obviously come from somewhere. And so putting this all together, here's some things that I've uh, thought of. The first thing is, well, there are two takeaways from this type of investigation. The first is that the blossoming of knowledge in the church is line upon line. And this section here is a record of where the early saints were in 1830. And many of these statements here will be modified, expanded, or added upon by further revelation, especially in the Nauvoo period, where you get even to some concepts of the multiplicity of gods and the blurring of, of the boundary between God and humanity and possible alternative ways for people to accept the saving gospel if they don't have a chance. And like, there's just so many things that are left open-ended here that get filled in later. That's one thing to name. And secondly, the close connection with other sources shows that revelators, in their phrasing of things at least, are highly influenced by the prevailing understandings of the time. So Oliver is recycling some of these things. You know, Joseph came from a family where his mother spent some time as a Presbyterian. And he could have, it seems like he was contemplating whether Presbyterianism was true because that's what he said after the first vision. He, said, he told his mom, well, I found out Presbyterianism wasn't true. And so he would have been familiar with some of these uh, creedal statements. And these are all the, the, tum the war of words and tumult of opinions that were flowing around. And he was really trying to wrestle with which, which one of these. And it turns out they're all abominations in a sense. Uh, from what he said, but they all have some truth in them too. But my point behind all this is that the questions that revelators ask are born of the circumstances of their time and day. And the way they phrase the answers that they receive is also based on the phrasing of the day. And we, when we look at the things like uh, the proclamation on the family, that is a product of its time. The question that they were mm -hmm. asking and the phrasing that they came up with really parallels what the moral majority, the conservative Christian coalitions of the time were saying, right? And that's, it reflects their interests, their concerns, their, uh, and here's the other thing that I just wanna backpedal a little bit and talk about this. People say, well, our leaders know by revelation all these things on LGBT stuff. And the answer is uh, they don't. They don't even claim to know. They basically know mm -hmm. three things. One, they know that gay sex is bad. No gay sex. Two, no gay marriage. And three, that people must identify and live as the gender they were assigned at birth. Other than those three things, they don't actually claim to know anything anymore on LGBTs. They're, they just throw up their hands and say, we don't know. We don't know if it's, this can be fixed. We don't know if you should marry this person or not. We don't know. Um, and this leads to some, some really 
interesting uh, practical things. Like we have gay men who are married to women who are assuming that they'll be straight in the next life. And we don't know that. The brethren mm-hmm. don't know that. They don't even claim to know any of these things. All they know is what gay people should not do. And this sort of naive assumption that they know better and they know what's and they have all this wisdom. They don't even claim to have all that extra wisdom. And they don't even right. claim to have anything beyond what every other conservative Christian in America is saying, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't take revelation to – they have no unique revelation on this. They're just saying what the other American – churches are saying it doesn't take revelation to say that what were we talking about right before we were talking about no it's fine um i was actually going to ask would this be a good time to discuss uh verse four and five in section 21 since we're already on this topic um i might want to come back to that because i think i want to finish some more things in dc dnc 20 as do i just seeing as how we're already on this subject yeah we'll just stay tuned (laughs) okay sounds good yeah so back to section 20. Oh, that's what I was talking about is um, we learn from the way that this particular creedal statement in DNC 20, how it's sort of interwoven with everything going on around them. That was my point. And this okay. happens all the time. And this is gets back to what we said in DNC section 1 verse 24 about that these things are given according to their weakness according to their own language and that's that's what we what we're operating with got you so i want to go and talk about verse 42 a, sec- a second but but one of the larger points i want to make is that we get into some organizational stuff and you know i'm not one of these people with a degree from harvard business school like half the members of the church so, um, at least half the people in this area seem to have some connection to HBS. But these church organization and offices and structure here did not appear all at once. The restoration took time to unfold, and it's still unfolding. So, yeah. the structure that we have here in section 20 has been modified and superseded by many different things. And so that that should give us hope that a lot of things can change. A lot of stuff that you think can't change. Like I thought that three-hour church came directly from Mount Sinai and couldn't change. Like when that hat change happened, I'm like, I did not think that they would ever change that because it seemed too sacred and too much of a tradition for people. Yeah. But let's look at something here. So verse 42 says, and this is continuing the duties of elders, uh, priests, teachers, deacons, and so on. And in verse 42, it says, and, and to teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over the church. And so this watching over the church isn't like a tyranny. There's no unrighteous dominion allowed here. But it's more like taking responsibility and saying, if someone else gets hurt, it's my fault. That's what responsibility is. And so let's talk about this. Here our leaders are charged with watching over the church and protecting the church. And this is a significant responsibility. And this portion of the revelation outlines, like I said, the duties and responsibilities of church leaders in general. And to talk about responsibility, I'm going to talk about this video. I watched this video about a hang gliding incident that happened in Switzerland a few years ago. This American tourist went to Switzerland and said, hey, let's, there's this pretty little mountain. It was such a big mountain. And they, uh, he decided, I've never been hang gliding before. I don't know what it's like. 
I'm gonna try it. So, so this tourist gets uh, gets connected with this hang gliding pilot where they do a tandem thing where the pilot is there and this other dude is strapped in, except he's actually not strapped in, which is really the horrible situation. <laughs> wow. So the pilot and the tourist, the passenger, are about to, to jump off of their side of the mountain. So they get a running start into the wind and it turns out that somehow the passenger's like not strapped in. And, and the way the hang gliding works is you are basically hanging suspended from a harness connected to the contraption. And so he was literally just hanging on with his hands onto this bar and trying to support his weight for over two minutes. And it was really, it was, I imagine it was terrifying. It's terrifying to watch. It must have been terrifying to experience. But first of all, I don't know how it happened because that's the type of thing that you would double check. Like I know hang gliders, they do a hang check where they they have the contraption on the ground and they 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 hang horizontally just to make sure it can hold their weight and everything's tight and it everything's the way it should be. And if they had done a hang check, he would have just fallen to the ground instead of being suspended but my point is like this dude the pilot it's not the fault of the i almost had a have had a half a thought of like why wouldn't you say hey why am i not strapped in like what what's going to hold me up like but he didn't think of that this was his first time flying and they put the harness on him maybe they thought when they put the harness on him he thought oh i'm buckled in right he didn't know that it's not his fault it is the totally the fault of the pilot who should have known this, who should have double-checked, and I just don't know how that happened. I just don't know how that happened. But anyway, yeah. what I want to say is that the experience of someone gay in the church and trying to st- trying to stay and make things... Oh, I, let me just tell you about this video. So this guy ended up living. He hung on for dear life. It was must have been to- a torment, tormented two minutes. I think he was literally three to 4,000 feet up in the air um almost a you know almost a mile up in the air i think and he um ended up dropping off near the ground near the landing and he broke his wrist and he was injured but he, at least he he lived that yeah, is so terrifying to watch but my point is that the experience of someone gay in the church this is how this is finally how i can get it through to straight people what being gay in the church is like people who are gay in the church and trying to stay and make things work is like the experience of this passenger. So in this analogy, church leaders are like that pilot who made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And the pilot didn't bear the cost for that mistake. The passenger is the one who was vulnerable and he got injured. Young gay teens, they don't know what's up. They depend and they trust the brethren to tell them the way it is. That ends up very, very risky, very dangerous. And the, the key piece to this analogy is the pilot strapped himself in, but didn't think, hey, look, he, I, I could get it if, if it went the other way around. Like, oh, I cared about my passenger so much, I, didn't, I forgot to buckle myself in. No, he buckled himself in. That, or if he forgot both of them, that would be one thing. He buckled himself in and not the passenger. That's, that's why I'm so disgusted. He mm-hmm. should have had the same care for this passenger or even more. You know, the captain goes down with his ship type thinking. Yeah, yeah. He should have had more concern about his passenger than himself. There should have been more humility and more caution to double check rather than just going forward with dangerous assumptions like, oh, I just, I'm assuming that he's buckled in. 
And right. here's the thing. In the church, straight leaders plow ahead with their assumptions and don't double check anything. Straight leaders essentially strap themselves in. They've made a way for themselves first and don't strap in LGBTs. And they're supposed to be the trusted experts like this pilot. And this leads to many, many LGBT folks in the church trying to hang on desperately for, for dear life, trying to make it work in a church, trying to make it in a church where there's no parachute, no harness, no nothing there to support us. And it's just, yeah, it's, now I'm not speaking so much of my personal experience, but I'm aggregating everything I've heard from literally hundreds of LGBT folks who've been raised in the church and raised with these expectations and raised with this idea of, well, the straight leaders have a, this beautiful plan of salvation that involves eternal families and we know all this stuff and we've got the security of these ordinances and we've got the temple. That's the leaders, that's the straight people strapping themselves in. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanna tie this back to your systematic theology. We've got a gap in our theology here. We've got something that's known for this group of people, but we have this entire gap, a systematic gap that is caused by our leaders failing to care enough to buckle buckle us in for the ride. And that mm. leads to terror for so many of my people. So now I've talked a lot. What are your reactions to this? Well, my reaction to that last part you said is that there are certain outgrowths that we are supposed to be able to expect as a result of people living their duties. Like this piece mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the theology here, of the ecclesiology tells us exactly what we are supposed to do. Well, starting with uh, the actual priesthood offices, it tells us what the elders are supposed to do, what the priests and teachers are supposed to do. Like, listen listen to what these responsibilities are. You started with verse 42, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, watch over the church. And then we get to people where it's also teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and minister the sacrament for the priests. Exhort them to pray vocally and in secret and to attend all family duties. And then we get to 50, we see the same thing. Preach, teach, expound, exhort, baptize. Visit the house of each member, mm -hmm. exhorting them to pray vocally and in secret and to attend to all family duties. Watch over the church always. This is verse 53 now. Watch over the church always and strengthen them. Like, and then finally, after all of those duties are listed, I don't think I got to all of them, but after all of that is listed, we get to verse 54 where it says, see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, nor backbiting, nor evil speaking. This verse 54 seems to be, or at least is written to be, a natural outgrowth of making sure that everything in verse 42 through 53 is actually done the way it's supposed to be done. It is my impression, Derek, that if people are actually attending to their duties the way they should be, mm -hmm. then LGBTQ folks would be strapped in. Black folks would be strapped in. Yeah. Women would be strapped in, you know? Yeah. But I feel like we still don't have a fundamental understanding of what it is to actually attend to these responsibilities of watching over people, visiting the house, exhorting people to play, pray vocally, watching over them. I don't think we quite figured out what it means to do those things. Otherwise, people would be strapped in. And here's that, the that's thing. My, you, know, yeah, you know if they made this, this mistake for themselves, it would be fixed. Like if somehow right. this right. up, if somehow a policy somehow got snuck in the handbook that said straight people couldn't get married, you know that would be fixed in, in less than 24 hours. 
right. right? They would fix it for themselves, but not for my people. What does that tell you about about anything? What does that tell you about how closely they have aligned themselves or not with Christ? Christ mm-hmm. actually did that. He's the one that, that strapped everyone else in and then went to the cross alone, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I want to I don't want to end with pessimism. I want to end <laughs> with some strength and resilience and empowerment because what I want to teach my people is don't be afraid of the hang gliding. You can fly in a way that straight people can't. Like we naturally can fly. So, we don't even need that stupid hang glider. We can be <laughs> ourselves and and you if you if you let go of the bar, you can just fly on your own power, right? Mm-hmm. So, here's what I want to do. I have a friend, he um when I went to Andover Newton Theological School, he went to Hebrew College, and we basically share a campus next door to one another. And so I met this this guy, and he was in rabbinical school. Now he's a rabbi, Rabbi Brian Mann, and he is a spoken word poet. And I'm going to share his poem called A Queer Man's Guide to Passing. And I just want to say two things before we start. So in the Jewish context, okay. there uh, a kippah is the name for the head covering that traditionally Jewish men wear. Uh, Women now wear them too, and people of all genders now wear them if they want to in more progressive circles. But anyway, so that's what a kippah is, also called a yarmulke. And the the other thing I want to say is that in this Queer Man's Guide to Passing, he goes through the the five principles of passing, and he goes through them twice. And so just just listen to the difference between these two. So okay. here it is, A Queer Man's Guide to Passing by Rabbi Brian Mann. One, wear religious clothing. Everyone knows being queer and religious is incompatible. Two, be hyper-aware of your friends. Ensure you have equal parts male and female. If also queer, ensure they make every effort to pass as well. Three, public displays of affection will never be a thing. Get over this now. Remember, even just holding his hand could lead to your body bloodied in the street. Four, when that absurdly attractive man stares at you, give him the high school head nod and avert your eyes immediately. You have porn to look at that. He will never be yours anyway. Five, in public, there is no such thing as a safe space. Remember this always. And one, wear a multicolored kippah that represents a pride flag. Remember the God that created all things made you this way for a reason. Two, be hyper aware of your friends. They will have your back more than your family ever did. Ensure you have equal parts trust and love. If also queer, ensure they make every effort to celebrate their identities. Three. Affection was meant to be displayed. Hold his hand every chance you get and make out with him in front of that conservative preacher. Four. When that absurdly attractive man stares at you, he's staring for a reason. Stare back. 
This could be your how we met story. He could be the reason you stop looking at porn. Five, the only way to make public spaces safer is to fail. Fail hard. Fail proudly. Fail every chance you get. It's so much better than passing. I really like that. I heard him, yeah, I've heard him I've heard him perform this poem a number of times. It's it's just so powerful. It expresses a lot of what I feel. Because and, and and maybe that's why people ask me, how did you why did you join this church when it's not safe? And I don't want to be safe. I want to be me. Satan doesn't win, right? I'm going to be me. I am not going to there's no closet big enough for me or or my wardrobe. So <laughs> So yeah, that's what I want to say is just as easy it is from my standpoint of privilege and resource, it's easy for me to say, don't be afraid, but they really can't do anything to you. If I mean, that's kind of my, my approach to this. And I would, that's where I go back into this nonviolent resistance type of a mindset where you're able to withstand the blows and not let that drag you down. Hmm. It's beautiful, man. Yeah, and it's I want to connect beautiful. this with something in verse 54 real quick. And this is the verse that says, and see, this is another one of their duties in terms of protecting people, and see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking. And the way I take this is that another one of the duties of church leaders in connection with keeping people safe is that... Um, the leaders must work hard to prevent bullying, to prevent abuse, and to prevent slander. And opposing racism falls under this category. I want to enumerate this as a commandment, right? To prevent all of these, these lies. And all, same thing with protecting LGBT folks. Church leaders should not let the lies about us fly around like confetti. But all too often that happens. One more thing I wanted to uh, make sure was mentioned here is that most of what is discussed in these verses doesn't require priesthood authority. We don't need authority to minister to folks in their homes, to watch over the church, to teach, preach, and uh, exhort folks to pray in their families. It says that these things are the duty of elders, priests, and teachers, but does that mean they're the only ones allowed to do it? Or does it rather mean that if it's not getting done, then it's their responsibility? Like if ministering isn't getting done, then, oh, we let the elders, teachers, and priests handle that. Now, obviously, there are some duties like baptism and the laying on of the hands that require priesthood authority, but most of these duties that are mentioned here in these like 30-some verses, they can be done by pretty much any member. While these verses don't say that explicitly, there is at least, or at least there seems to be some room for a more egalitarian government of the church where we could include women in more of our administrative and ministering duties that don't require priesthood authority at least until we finally decide to give them the priesthood. Right. And and this this gets back to the to the question of responsibility. It's like who is on the hook when something doesn't get done? And I think that's where I think the the brethren are. I mean, if something doesn't get right. done, ultimately it's their it's their fault. Right? They're mm-hmm. the ones that are in the position and have the stewardship over 
the group and if it's kind of like the like i said with the captain on a ship like if something goes wrong even if it's not your fault it's still your fault right you have to deal with it and i think we've gotten decades and decades of our leaders not dealing with certain things and and sort of abandoning the responsibility they want to have they want to be seen as leaders and responsible but from where i stand they're just avoiding some of the hard things that come with leadership. Mm. And that gets into what it means that we need to receive the words of our leaders in all patience. Uh, so let's go into, yeah, I think you had some, some things about that in DNC section 21. Well, all I wanted to say really was this is a similar conversation to what we had when we first discussed sec- uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 1 verse 38. Uh, that's actually cross-referenced in uh, section one, or sorry, section 21, verse five, it goes right back to it. What I have the Lord have spoken, what I the Lord have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth may pass away, my words shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Now, you've already talked about the structure of this particular sentence and what is actually being communicated when we read verse or section one, verse 38. Uh, But we don't have those same grammatical curiosities that exist here, which is why a lot more people tend to use 21, verse five, to talk about strict obedience to the prophets, no matter what they say. The verse says, for his word, ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience of faith. So there's a lot less wiggle room here, but I did want to take a moment to just talk a little bit about why we can't read this simply as it is and why there's more context to be considered before we try to weaponize this verse against people who don't necessarily fall in line with what the prophets are saying or who are operating outside of what is currently prescribed by the prophets. Yeah, I just want to say that you can't really read this verse without reading the first, uh, the verse that comes right before where it says, Thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them. Mm-hmm. So that is a very, very important condition here. It's not just we're supposed to believe or receive everything. It just says as he as he receives them. So it, it presupposes that he has received something from God. It doesn't say that everything he says is automatically from God. Clearly that's not true. Right. But it's give heed to them insofar as as they're received from God. Mm-hmm. And that's the word that we shall receive um, as if from God's own mouth in all patience and faith. And a number of people have pointed this out, I think including Patrick Mason, is that the fact that it requires patience to receive these things means that it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to to be infallible. It's going to require some patience. And that uh, uh, it, it, it assumes that, that which we already knew which is that prophets and apostles have limitations. They absolutely have limitations. And yes, God works with those limitations, but they have limitations. And that's why I want to say that the words of our prophets are only a declaration of the fountain and not the fountain itself. Check this out. The words of our prophets are only a declaration of the fountain and not the fountain itself. Can you say a little bit more? Oh, well, oh, I thought that was... <laughs> um, I mean, that was profound. I really love it, and I'm going to quote it, but I'm just like... 
what I mean by this a, is by fountain, that's that's like the this life-giving source of, of what God has for us. And the words of the prophets just point to that fountain. They're not the fountain. Their words uh-huh. aren't the fountain, but they point towards the fountain. And I think that's yes. what we're that's the faith that's where we're really faithful to what the prophets are doing, is if we look at the thing that they're pointing to, then we are faithful to the prophets. If we look at their finger, we're not faithful. And I think gotcha. so many people culturally in the church, the prophets are pointing to Christ, and instead of looking at Christ, we're looking at the finger. I'm like, you mean God restored this church through all this effort and through all this turmoil and all that, God restored this church just so that you can look at a finger? I mean, like, we don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so speaking of not having time, we are very much over time. <laughs> yeah. And I still have a whole bunch I wanted to say about DNC 22 verse 4 because that I think no one has really found a good way of addressing and a and that can definitely be used in an abusive way. This is the one that says seek not to counsel God and I'm like that could be very very easily used to um in a manipulative way about our LGBT friends. Mm-hmm. But I suppose we shall save that for another day, or at least the conversation for another day, not necessarily the verse, since obviously we will have moved on by then. Before we wrap up here, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook and uh, Twitter. And, and those handles are at BTBLDS. Also, I don't think we got any ev- events coming up, at least not to my knowledge. The Black LDS Legacy Conference is available for uh, replay on the Black LDS Legacy Facebook page. A Zoom link was sent out to everybody who registered. The re- that replay will be available for a month, but I assume that the one that's present on Facebook, again, the page is the Black LDS Legacy. It is available, I think, indefinitely. So definitely check that out. Watch it at your own leisure. It was really great to be able to experience and uh, have fellowship with all the saints. We were able to hear from Jasmine Bradshaw, uh, Jeanique and Shantae of Let's Talk Sis. Taryn Trinneman was there and, you know, so many other folks. Obviously, the whole Black LDS Legacy Committee was there, including Tamu and Zandra of Sisters in Zion. So definitely check that out. It was, again, an incredibly uplifting spiritual experience. And I encourage everybody who has any desire to participate in this fight against attitudes and actions of prejudice in the name of Christ, I highly recommend checking out that replay. Is there anything else that needs to be acknowledged, Derek? Here's what I'm thinking of doing because I'm realizing yes, that, oh, I can't just cover this like another week because uh, because people are gonna be preparing for the come follow me to teach in that Sunday or to be preparing for, you know, to hear someone else teach it badly. So here's what I'm gonna do. I think 
If you're listening now, I'm going to make my own video where I talk about DNC 22.4 and what it me- means to, or what this is all about in terms of seek not to counsel your God. And that way I can really unpack this in a way so that people will not use this. So what I want to do is I'm going to make a video and I guess I'll post a link to it on the BTB Facebook somewhere. It might not be a very good video, but I want this to be there before next week. Alrighty then. Also wanted to uh, send a thank you to Tamara Kemsley for editing our audio and also David Doyle for working on our transcripts. Thank you guys very much for all that you guys do to support the work of the podcast. If there's nothing else, thank you guys for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again next week. Bye.